need connection, accountability, support as you explore the next level version of you, give yourself a real gift this year, the gift of time. The Warrior Women Mastermind is starting again in January, a curated group of six amazing women in a safe, collaborative setting. Think you don't have enough time? The money? Wrong. Ask yourself if you're worth three hours a month and $25 a day. The biggest discovery some of the women who sign up for my mastermind figure out is they have so much in common with other women and that they have traded their worth for a to-do list. Set up your interview call with me by going to lizswadek.com. That's L-I-Z-S-V-A-T-E-K.com. Space is limited and will sell out fast. Don't miss this opportunity to put yourself first. Women aren't born warriors. We become them. And the road to becoming a warrior is bumpy as hell. Each week, I'm interviewing women who, through tragedy and triumph, are leaping for greatness. Get ready to unleash your inner warrior. I'm Liz Swadek, and this is Conversations with Warrior Women. Hello, warriors. This is a conversation I've been wanting to have for a long time now. It's something that the moms I know are talking about in secret. I want to shine a light on this subject today and open up the conversation about addiction, drinking, drugs, and how much is too much, not only with kids, but with moms as well. My guest today is beyond qualified to tackle this subject. I wanted to ask her what moms are asking me. How much drinking is too much? For us, moms, what about for our teens? Is drinking wine every night okay? One glass, a few glasses? Is it okay to let your high school age kids try a sip of alcohol or beer or even a few white claws under your supervision? As a mom of two kids with ADHD, and I believe my husband and I have it as well, how do we keep our kids and ourselves from self-medicating because of stress, learning challenges, and this fast, busy, and doing all the time lifestyle our society is built upon? I wanted initially to know how to inoculate my kids against addiction, but I realized the conversation is much bigger than that. Drinking, in particular, has become embedded into our culture. Wine 30, rosé all day. It's on journals, cups, t-shirts. It's all over Instagram. Are we drinking too much? I think so. This is not a one-and-done conversation, but what I feel is a series of talks I'll have on this subject. I'm willing to bet this is going to be one of my most popular episodes. Please pass this on to anyone who has questions about addiction, drinking, drugs, whether they're teens or adults. Reach out to me at liz at lizswadek.com if you have any questions or need any help. We'll provide resources for you. All right, warriors, let's get into it. But first, Being an entrepreneur can be lonely. That's why I joined the Bra Network. That's the Business Relationships Alliance. 
Just like a good bra, the Bra Network lifts, gathers, and connects you to other like-minded entrepreneurial women with the knowledge that when we work together, we rise together. For me, the Bra Network provides the community, mentorship, collaboration, and empowerment I was looking for. From business, marketing, and finance courses to curated events to weekly Zoom meetups, the Bra Network works to advance women across the country. If you haven't joined, now's the time. Use your special code, WARRIOR, for your discount and join today at bra-network.com. That's bra-network.com. All right, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today, I have Jessica Leahy. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling The Gift of Failure and The Addiction Inoculation. She is a prevention and sobriety coach at SANA. Is it SANA? SANA. SANA. You know, old (laughs) SANA. SANA at Stowe, an evidence-based medical detox and recovery center in SANA, Vermont. She has two kids who are grown and flown, so consequently, she has three dogs and two cats. She lives in the woods of Vermont with her husband, Tim. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you. And Santa is in Stowe, Vermont. Stowe, Vermont. Okay, what did I say? Santa, Vermont. But that's okay. It's in Stowe, Vermont. That's so funny because that's from your bio. I think that's something in I think that's in your bio. I don't know. Oh, I gotta change that. Yeah, we gotta change. We're gonna change it. Anyway, it's in Slow Vermont if anyone's looking for it. Jessica, as I was just telling you, I'm thrilled to have you here because I discovered you through my dear friend Dr. Kim Swales, her podcast, Connect, I think it's called Connecting with Kim. I wanna say I so appreciate your honesty, your straightforwardness, and I love this book. I read it cover to cover, so I am thrilled to have you. So thank you, thank you for coming on today. And because we're gonna talk about the addiction inoculation today, I want you to promise me that you will come back and speak about the gift of failure. Will you promise me? Absolutely. I love talking about this stuff. I love talking about all things, kids, child welfare, learning, all that stuff. I love it. Okay. I'm so excited. Okay. So let's just begin with this because this is how direct you are. You say, I got lost and drunk in my early motherhood and had to scramble out of that deeply dark and scary place. I now have nine years of recovery and two healthy adult children. Tell me about your journey to sobriety, like the low points and how did Mm -hmm. you have the strength to get sober? I had an alcoholic parent. Well, I have an alcoholic parent, but that parent is in recovery now and lots of, you know, big family history of that, as does my husband, by the way. He got lucky though. He gets to be one of those people who can drink moderately. It's just bizarre to me. So I knew that was the one thing I was never, ever going to be. And so I stayed away from it for a very, very long time. And, you know, every time someone asks me, you know, can you pinpoint the moment that things slipped from, you know, quote unquote, normal social drinking into a problem It was a really slow slide. And, you know, the best I can say, it was definitely when my kids were little, you know, I, I just, I was used to being a workaholic. I was used to, it was just, and I had really bad anxiety. And so I think all of those things sort of came together and, you know, it went from a glass of wine while I was cooking dinner, maybe also a glass of wine with dinner to me pre-gaming so that I could have a bottle before my husband ever got home. And, you know, all the crazy things that happen, you know, all the weird habits and rituals and all that crazy stuff. So I knew I had a problem for a couple of years before 
June 7th, 2013. I was scared to death. I was also a full-time middle school teacher. You know, if a teacher is an alcoholic, well, I'm going to get definitely going to get fired, right? So I felt like it was in a catch-22 where if I asked for help, then I was going to get found out and it was really scary. Yeah. That's it. That's how I never even considered that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was really frightening. It can also be really, really frightening for people in healthcare. And it turns out that the healthcare industry There are some really great books actually about that. Long Walk Out of the Woods, Free Refills by Peter Grinspoon. There are some really great books about that because it can be really difficult to get help when you're a physician because then you have a ton of restrictions placed on your licensure and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, so on June 7th, 2013, I got super duper hammered at my mom's birthday party. And I got blackout drunk, don't remember it for better or for worse. And the next morning, my dad came up to the guest bedroom and basically he just sort of sat there. And, you know, this is a guy who hates conflict, hates making me upset. He pushed all of that aside. He was so unselfish and said, I know what an alcoholic looks like because he was very familiar with alcoholism. I know what an alcoholic looks like and you're an alcoholic and you need help. And that was for me, I talk about having an issue with substances as being like a 100 piece puzzle. And my dad, that was the 100th piece slipping into place, keeping in mind, of course, that one through 99 have to be there in order for that 100th piece to slip into place. And so when he said that, I said, yeah, I know, I know I'm going, going to go to a meeting tonight. So I did, I went to a meeting that night that turned out to become my home group, the same, you know, I, I just, it was so frightening. It was so massively frightening to admit that I wasn't good at everything, that I wasn't perfect and that I needed help. But once I did, oh my gosh, the support was incredible. And that's part of why I feel like it's really important for me to be as public as possible in that I was very fortunate, got a lot of support. You know, I'm, you know, very privileged in that I didn't lose my job. You know, I think white women of privilege get to say things like this and people say, oh, you're so brave. Whereas, you know, if I was like a black single mom and I said I was an alcoholic, you know, that's just another strike against me. And so, you know, if I'm in the position to be able to make it easier for other people to say these things. And every time I say it out loud in an interview or on stage or whatever, someone gets in touch with me and says they're scared or they need help or can they talk about it? So... Yeah, it's been pretty good. It's such a beautiful thing, right? It's so turning your pain into purpose is like literally been almost like the theme of this podcast since day one. I didn't realize Mm -hmm. it then, but now, but it's such an amazing thing to think, you know, I listened to this Ed Milet podcast one time and he was mentioning his dad was, I don't know if you know who he is, but he's kind of a fascinating person, but his dad was an alcoholic. And one Mm -hmm. of the episodes he was talking about, you know, we were thinking the other day, we don't know who the person is that was the person that <laughs> basically had him get sober. Like we don't know who that hundredth piece in the puzzle mm-hmm. was. Like, you know, it was your dad, Yeah, but yep. he didn't even know who that was. But think of all the people who are brave enough to share and say, I've, I know what this looks like. This is what this is. Mm-hmm. And please get help. It's, you know, yeah. there's a level of amazing bravery, but also that's a catalyst. Like that yeah. you the catalyst for so many people is amazing. Well, and you know, it's interesting is that even though I get to be, I've gotten to be that 100th person for that 100th piece of the puzzle for some people, you hardly ever get to do that. I mean, like that's the dream, right? Is to say it to someone and they're like, oh my gosh, you're so right. I need help. Let's go do that now. Most of the time it 
you know, it's no, I'm fine. No, I don't need help. Maybe later, you know, there's all these phases to getting better. And, you know, there's pre-contemplation and contemplation and action, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, don't go out there thinking that every single time you call yeah. someone on their drinking, they're going to be like, oh, you heard the good you. news. I know. I'm like a door-to-door <laughs> Bible salesman. No, I, you're, that's a good point. Then it's still worth saying, even if you're not the hundredth, right? It's still worth right. saying it because you, even if you're the 75th, at least it's another piece in the puzzle. Well, and sometimes it's just a matter of just being there to listen. You know, I had one person, when I first wrote this book, someone I had gone to high school with, DM'd me, direct messaged me on Facebook out of nowhere. Like I had not heard from this person since we last saw each other in high school. And I've come to understand what that means. Like when people reach out to me randomly for no specific reason, just checking in, see how you are. Uh What that means is in in about a year, they're going to want to have a phone call. And it really did take, I think it took two years with this person. And this person is now in recovery actually, but it took you know, it took a couple false starts, a couple, yeah, yeah, I promise, or let's talk. And then the person wouldn't call, but that, and a couple of relapses and that person is still chugging along, you know, trying to stay sober and doing their best. And, you know, it's, it can be a long, it can be a long space between sort of realizing you may have a problem to actually getting help. It's a really good point. In the addiction inoculation, the book, you talk about Googling Am I an alcoholic? And yeah. Yes, which is so something I would do. Like, I'm always like, let me ask Google <laughs> if I have cancer or if I'm overweight. Let me ask him and see what he says. I bet some of our listeners are thinking, yeah, I've done. Yeah. I have Googled, I am an, am I an alcoholic? I want to talk about the kind of epidemic, the yeah. full scale, constant marketing to women and moms uh-huh. about yeah. drinking. Wine yeah. 30. Wine is therapy. Rosé right. all day. Um, these wine-infused playdates, I, which I have been, I, I want to raise my hand right now and say I've been to 175 of these and looking mm-hmm. back how dangerous and not good and dark that was. It's everywhere and women are truly suffering. How do you know your drinking is a problem? How much is too much? Because this is a question I have been asked. This is a question I've discussed with other women. Like, do you think this is bad? This is how much I have. And I don't always know what to say, Jessica. It's mm-hmm. not like I'm yeah. an expert, right? So what right. what do I say? Or what is it? What do we do? You know, those quizzes that, you know, used to be in magazines and, you know, you can Google it. I think there's some utility to those, but it's also really dangerous. And I think there's a lot of comparison that goes on. Like when you first, like when I first got into recovery over and over again, I would hear these stories and there's this temptation to say, well, I'm not as bad as that. Like here are all these right. lines I haven't crossed yet. With my, right. with my hidden bottle under the seat. Exactly. Be okay. Right. Right. And so I think the wonderful thing about the rise of this sort of sober curious culture, whether it's dry January, whether it's sober October, you know, Holly Whitaker really hit a, there are things I love, by the way, about Holly Whitaker's Quit Like a Woman and things I'm not a huge fan of, but the parts that I love about Quit Like a Woman are, she's like, look, we don't have to fit this descriptor alcoholic or someone with a substance use disorders or someone with an alcohol addiction or sorry, 
a person with an alcohol use disorder. We're supposed to be using the person first language. We don't have to fit into that construct or rise to some level so that a label applies to us. We can stop and say, in the same way we can say, I'm not getting enough sleep. I'm not eating foods that are healthy for me. Boy, alcohol makes me feel really icky. In fact, when one of my got sober, the other one got sober too, because it just didn't make them feel good. And it they realized, oh, this is sort of a, an interesting opportunity for me to evaluate reevaluate my, you know, my drinking and why I drink. And so for me, I had gotten to the place where I was done and lots of people I have met have gotten way beyond that place. You know, they have lost jobs. They've lost their marriage. They've gotten DUIs. I'm so grateful that my last straw came well before that, but I, all of those things were just about to happen to me. I was going to lose my job. I was going to get divorced. I was, all these bad things were going to happen. And my kids were getting to the age where they were starting to, you know, they were going to start to notice. So, you know, that this rise of this sober curious thing, I think has been freeing for a lot of people because they can say, huh, I don't like what this is doing for me. And it's, that's great because I think anytime we need to slap a label on something, there are always going to be people that just fall just under, you know, Mm -hmm. did I get a five on that quiz or did I get a six on that quiz? And, oh, if I only got a five, then I'm cool. I can keep doing this as opposed to saying, you know, I think I've had enough. And for everyone, it's different. Warning signs like, I really don't like the way this makes me feel. I'm not, I don't like how I'm showing up. Like, what are some things that kind of like, I don't know, clued you Mm -hmm. in? you know, if you would to like, you know what, this, I think this might actually be a problem. Yeah. Some of it had very little to do with the drinking. In fact, on the flip side of this, a friend of mine who relapsed during the pandemic said, you know, I may not have picked up the wine on this particular date, but I was having, I was having relapse thinking for a good long time before that. And it's isolating it's hiding things from my spouse. I mean, I tell my spouse everything and yet I was keeping secrets from him. I was having to sneak around. I was hiding things. It was exhausting. I couldn't, he couldn't take the recycling out because I had to be the one to take the recycling out because I didn't want him to see what was in the recycling. Stephen King talks about this in On Writing as well. That was one of his big moments where he realized just how many tall boy beer cans were in the, the redemption bucket. But even with him, he says that moment for him wasn't, oh, crap, I have a problem. I need to stop. His That moment was, oh, you got to be careful because if you mess up, someone's going to call you on this. You've got a problem. And so we got to hide this as much as possible. I wasn't sleeping well. My anxiety, the reason I started drinking in the first place had ramped up to the point where I was waking up every morning at about 2.30 with a full-blown anxiety attack. And I was a teacher. I had to be at school really early in the morning and I felt horrible in the mornings. In fact, I had a running group that met even before I had to get up for school. And that was just a disaster. Um, you know, there are a lot of things, the little triggers for me along the way that made me say, I think this is it. I, interestingly, I get to lead recovery meetings at a spa. I work, it's don't get jealous, but every six months, every (laughs) six months or so I am a speaker at Canyon Ranch in Lenox or Tucson and at Canyon Ranch. Yeah, I'm jealous. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty great. And my husband says it's the reason he can never leave me is he'd lose access to Canyon Ranch. (laughs) So they put me up and I do talks there about the gift of failure and the addiction inoculation. And sometimes I even run the recovery meetings and there are often people there's you, they don't serve alcohol at Canyon ranch. And so there will be people that will show up for the recovery meeting. It's a safe place to do it because it's not only anonymous, it's like 
anonymous within anonymous because you don't know any of the other people there will show up and say, you know, I came here thinking, cool, you know, I'll take a week-long break from drinking. And then I realized just how anxious that made me. And I'm just curious what you do here because I need to, clearly I need to reevaluate sort of where I am, which is the benefit of doing like a sober month, like sober October or January or whatever. how hard it really is. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm really hesitant to ever say like, this is the point at which you realize, oh, wow, you're an alcoholic because it is so different for everybody. Um, It really has to do with the isolation, secrecy changes in your sleep or eating schedule and realizing that you've crossed all those lines that you kept laying down saying, well, I won't do this. Like with a friend of mine, I know, yeah. yeah, a friend of mine, I know who, you know, did heroin for a long shot heroin for a long time. She, she's like, well, you know, my lines just kept moving. It's like, well, I'll never inject a drug like that's for junkies. I would never do that. And then she's injecting and she's like, okay, well, I would never <laughs> do yeah. this while I have the baby with me. But then she was doing it. Well, she, you know, it just, so, when you find yourself crossing your own personal lines, that's another all the indicator. Time. Yeah. yeah. And you know what's so funny? You saying that as a coach, I would think that applies to so many because I coach women. Oh, yeah. That applies to so many things. If you find yeah. yourself just going over your boundary and just put, you know, putting literally moving the goalpost. So right. you have to, you know, then you really know that you're right. out of alignment, frankly. You're yeah. out of alignment. I want to shift the attention a little bit to kids. I'm yeah. Like, I know a lot of parents are concerned about like, you know, their kids turning into ad. They don't want to di- uh, mm-hmm. addict kids. Our kids are already mm-hmm. addicted to a lot of things. Gaming. Hello, dopamine. Yes. Dopamine all over the place. What makes kids self-medicate, I guess is my question. First off, I want to say whenever I'm, when we're talking about kids, we have to be really clear. We have to talk about the fact that their brains are fundamentally different from adult brains, that there are two periods of brain development that are, you know, where the environment can plays a really important part of how the brain functions. And when we mess around with that before the brain is done developing, then we can do some real damage to the brain. So there's zero to two when, you know, kids are figuring out they have toes and starting to walk and all that kind of cute stuff. And then there's the less cute, more stinky part, which is like from, uh, you know, puberty to, you might hear some weird noises in the background. My dogs are play fighting (laughs) from adolescence to the early to mid twenties. And until that door closes in the early to mid twenties and the frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex is all attached to the lower part and the, all the synapses are talking to each other and the myelin is all over the brain cells. Using substances is potentially more damaging than it is to an adult brain. So that's really important to sort of keep in mind, which is why the message is delay, delay, delay. Okay. So the reason that kids seek out substances, there's a couple of reasons. So in adolescence, there are sort of two parallel developmental things going on. There's the lower part of the brain that's like super active during adolescence. That's the like the part that's really good at reacting to things, at being emotional and reacting. That's the lower part of the brain, the limbic system, the amygdala, all that sort of stuff. Once we get older and our entire brain is wired up and attached and talking to every other part of our brain, we're better able to do the adulting stuff, the self-control, the organization, the time management, the all that kind of stuff. And those two processes aren't happening on the same at the same time. So there's a period of time where the amygdala reaction part of the lower part of the brain is sort of like large as an, and in charge where before the adulting part is really fully well, in place. Yeah. So 
Right. And so, but the cool thing about adolescence is the function of adolescence is to seek out novelty, right? Because in order to become fully functioning, competent, you know, self-efficacious adults, we have to go try new things and become competent at new things. And so new things often also have risk attached to them. So adolescents are seeking novelty, 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 novelty. The other reason for that is adolescents have lower baseline levels of dopamine in their brain. And dopamine isn't just about joy and pleasure. It's about its drive. It's about motivation. So if they have lower baseline levels of dopamine than adults or little kids, life feels a little more boring. It's just not as exciting. And the problem is when they use drugs and alcohol to stimulate a dopamine hit, their brain, the problem is it's not like they get they the dopamine goes up and then it comes back down to the same level. The dopamine goes up and goes down even lower than where it started. Oh, so, so you get a kid catch it. Yeah, if there's a wonderful book called Never Enough by Judith Grizel, where she explains this sort of two-phase thing where there's the up and then there's not just equal and opposite, but equal and steeper decline after you're done. So where you can end up if you're using drugs and alcohol all the time is that the dopamine high isn't ever as high as it was the first time. You know, like you hear all the time about people who aren't opiates chasing that first high. It isn't ever as high as it was in the beginning and the lows are way lower. And you just keep going down, down, down till the point where you have no drive. You don't even want to get out of bed anymore. So that's the paradox. But like I said, it's completely normal for adolescents to seek novelty, to seek risk, not as much risk, but to seek novelty and to want to do something about that boredom. And so for us as parents and as educators, coaches, whatever you are in terms of mentorship with kids, we have to find ways to help them get those hits of dopamine without having to resort to drugs and alcohol. And there are some great ways to do that, like helping them seek out positive risk, positive novelty, trying out for a new, trying out for a play, going out for a different team. One of the best ways we can do that is by fostering competence and self-efficacy and feelings of self, the ability to self-advocate. That's what the gift of failure is all about, which is why the books dovetail. The dopamine hit from accomplishing something is like, but the problem is any natural hit of dopamine and some of the other neurotransmitters we have is never going to be as sharp and as massive as, you know, mainlining a drug. So that's the problem is it hijacks our natural system of keeping us motivated to move forward, try new things, blah, 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 by, you know, just short circuiting that, that up and down yeah. cycle. Yeah. I know some moms who are letting that we've talked about this, Jessica. And so I just have to, yes, I know some moms that are letting their high school <laughs> kids drink yeah. or smoke pot in their yeah. homes or with them. Yeah, supervised because I was one of them. Oh Jesus! Yeah, because they think they're mature enough, or their grades are really good. They're getting straight A's, so why can't they have a white claw? Why can't they have a beer? Or they think, well, they're going to do it anyway, and I'd rather have them do it under my roof, right? What do you say to that, Jessica? Or there's a third reason I hear a lot, which is if. I can just raise my kid like those European kids so that there's this, I can teach them moderation. They'll see and experience moderate drinking that will magically teach them moderation and they'll, they'll be like those European kids. So there's a couple of problems here. Number one, for people who have predisposition like I do, 
to not be able to moderate with substances, you can't, I cannot learn moderation. It's just not a part of, it doesn't work for me. I'm never going to be able to learn moderation around alcohol. It's just not going to happen. Number two, holding Europe up as the end-all be-all romantic ideal, not such a good idea. So according to the World Health Organization, the European Union has the highest rates of alcohol consumption in the world. You're going to, people are going to comment on this and they're going to be like, that Leahy, she's so full of crap because no, it's only, you know, it's those Eastern Europeans or it's the, oh, or what about Greece and Italy where consumption rates are a little bit lower. It turns out in the countries in Europe where there is an exception and, and alcohol consumption rates are a little bit lower. It's because there's a societal people, the whole society looks down on sort of public drunkenness and falling over in the streets kind of thing. It's a societal pressure kind of thing. So if I'm going to pick a place or a people to model my children after, it's not going to be the European Union in terms of its drinking. So bad idea. So overarching over this whole thing, what we know is this. Parents who have a consistent and clear message of no, not until it is legal for you. And frankly, from my perspective, it's less about the legality and more about finishing up that brain development, getting your brain to the place where it's done developing. If we have a consistent and clear message of no, not until it is legal for you, those kids will have radically lower likelihood of developing substance use disorder during their lifetime. 90% of people who have substance use disorder report that they started using before they were 18. People who have a permissive take on drugs and alcohol or alcohol, like I did with my oldest, those kids have radically higher statistical likelihood of developing substance use disorder during their their lifetime. Yes, there are some statistical anomalies. We, you know, some problems we'd have to talk about in terms of causation, correlation, and other factors in there, but that's what we know. So I have one kid who was raised, he was allowed to have sips and he was allowed to, you know, have his own glass of wine and stuff like that. I even admit to some other stuff in the book that's just horrible and humiliating. Whereas my younger child, my daughter, she has had a blanket, no, not until it is legal for you. And, you know, legal between you and me, if we can get them to 18, we're doing pretty well because if a kid starts trying, if a kid starts using in eighth grade, let's say, so we know like eighth grade, 10th grade, and 12th grade are some great landmarks to talk about. If a kid starts in eighth grade, they have almost a 50% chance of developing substance use disorder during their lifetime. If in 10th grade, yeah, in 10th grade, it goes down somewhere a little higher than 20%. But if we can get them to 18 or 21, we can get it down to about 10%, which is what it is in the total population. So there's a massive difference. The longer we can delay that first use, not only do their brains have more time to develop normally, and we don't have time to go into it, but there's all kinds of for all kind, drugs and alcohol can do all kinds of terrible things to the brain and things that would be low to moderate risk in an adult brain are like moderate to high risk in a child's brain and an adolescent brain. So not only can we get them to the place where their brains develop more normally, we also, with each passing year, lower their risk of developing substance use disorder during their lifetime. Okay. I'm glad that you clarified that because honestly- <laughs> been something that's been talked about in all the circles. Yeah. What about it's the biggest it's the it, that is the biggest pushback I get. People really want to cling to either the European myth or the they're going to do it anyway, so therefore they might as well do it at my house. I've heard that a lot. Right. Teaching them right. thing. 
which like, and which it, is interesting that you're saying some people cannot be taught that. Right. Hear that. And I'm married to a statistician. And so, you know, every single time I would make some sort of proclamation about the numbers, I would, I had my husband go over just about everything. And the numbers are really, really clear that the older we can, you know, the longer we can get our kids, the closer we can get them to that, you know, that magic age of somewhere early to mid twenties, the better off they're going to be not only from a brain development perspective, but from a statistical perspective in terms of their risk of substance use disorder. I'm, I hear you loud and clear. I hear you loud and clear. In fact, I'm going to pay, <laughs> I'm going to pay my children to wait. That's my, that's the way I'm looking at it. What about kids with ADHD? What mm-hmm. how do they fall into? Because I, when I was first, Landon, my son has ADHD, is 15. When we were first talking about medicating him, I was so against mm-hmm. it. I was like, no, I mean, I barely take an Advil and I'm not mm-hmm. like, we have done like hardly any drugs at all. You know, I drink, but I'm just not, I just was not interested. And the psychologist at the time was like, you don't know what you're doing because mm-hmm. this kid is going to become so exhausted. He's going to become so upset because he already thinks he's stupid because they've told him that basically. Right. He's exhausted from trying to learn their way. And if you don't medicate him so that he can get him his focus and attention, he will self-medicate. He will absolutely yeah. do something. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So above and beyond the quote, self-medication thing, academic failure is a massive risk factor for substance use disorder, as is social ostracism, as is a lot of other things that I talk about in the addiction inoculation. But so where we are now with ADD and ADHD is that the best research we have right now shows that if a kid is well-managed, if their ADD or ADHD is well-managed on a proper medication, their risk for substance use disorder goes down. If they are undiagnosed or not well-medicated, that their medication is the wrong medication or it's not well-managed or it's intermittent, whatever, the compliance is not great, then their risk of substance use disorder goes up. So it really has to do with early intervention and making sure that they're being medicated properly you know, by someone who really knows what they're doing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Tell me why you shared your addiction story with your kids. So I didn't have much of a choice. I mean, in terms of the urgency of the situation, because I have the genetics for substance use disorder and so does my husband. So genetics are about 50 to 60% of the risk picture. And I just, we didn't have time to ignore that. I mean, it's like, you can't just sort of hope that your kids are going to like start to understand how sex and consent and all that other stuff works. You have to actually talk to them about it. So that was the first big thing. And our family has always been, we've always been really honest with each other and forthcoming. We talk a lot. So that was part of it as well. The other thing in terms of being public, public, you know, for me, being accountable to more people, the more people I'm accountable to, the better I am. I can't do what I do if I can't go work at Santa at Stowe, the rehab, unless I'm sober. I can't face my friends. I can't, I, you know, I'm going off in a couple of days on a speaking event about the addiction inoculation. I can't do that if I'm not sober. So there are a lot of reasons that I have to stay sober in order to keep my family healthy and keep me healthy and keep my work going. And that's good for me. It's really good for me to be accountable to a lot of people and I'm accountable to my children. And I think that's, we support each other as a family and that's part of it for me. You asked another question though, which is 
about the well, what if you know you got you yeah, know drunk you during college? Yeah, tell your yeah. Kid, Jessica, I don't know. So, yeah, so that's the other really tough question I get, which is how much do you tell your kids yeah. if you're going to be forthcoming? And you know, in the addiction inoculation, I talk, I interviewed a lot of people about it, and in fact, one psychologist was like, "Yeah, I really screwed that one up because I went too far and I downright romanticized how fun <laughs> it was in college yeah, to exactly. try everything." Exactly. Um, there is a line. I've, I'm allowed to reveal that my husband has a year we refer to as his lost year where he smoked a lot of weed after college and before he figured out what he wanted to do with his life. And that year, he lost a lot during that year. I mean, that was a year, it was a good experience for him to you know spin his wheels for a while. But at the same time, he knows for a fact he lost a lot of short-term memory during that year. And he also knows that he was so not motivated because of his drug use that it took him longer than it should have for him to sort of sort his life out and figure out what he wanted to do. Um, And we talk about that with our kids. Like, yeah, these are the things he's done and here was the upside and here was the downside. And that's what we know works for prevention is presenting kids with real information, especially since the human brain tends to, warp our perception of how much people drink and how important alcohol, for example, is to people. And we have a, we screw that up a little bit. It's just the way we tend to perceive things. So giving kids real information and then giving them a little bit of credit for, to make some good decisions based on that information is a really important part of prevention. Absolutely. I love when you talked about the exit strategy yeah. um, in the book. And I shared that with my daughter. I want to talk about it a little bit like that because we talked about how, or in the book, you talk about how it's not enough to just be like, just your friends are going to ask you and you just say <laughs> no. And you say, say no. no. Right. Yeah. Drugs the <laughs> that's not, that's a stupid, really antiquated. Yeah idea, just say no and all the things. But I love your exit strategy. And when I shared it with Coco, she said, I'm so excited. I said, what? (laughs) He goes, I realized my ulcerative colitis, that's the whole reason I can't drink because I can't. Like if I go, oh my God, Coco, you have something built in. That's so cool. So like, I love that her mind went there. Like it was so- that, That was my favorite part of the book to write because I couldn't. So I knew I wanted lots of excuses kids could use so that they could say no in a way that would help them save face and not look like a total dork. And I didn't have all that ammunition myself. I had to go out and ask lots and lots of kids and they came back with the most innovative and interesting and creative solutions. Everything from, you know, if you have if you get migraines, if you have a sleep issue, if you are gluten intolerant, if you are taking an antibiotic, if you have an early practice, I mean, two and a half pages of totally valid excuses that you can give for why you're not going to drink or use that evening that, that, you know, will help you save face. And like I said, I, it's so rare that we actually ask kids to help us. And boy, they rise to the challenge when we ask them to do that. So anyway, the exit strategy, right? Like, yeah. So for me, well, I mean, for me, an exit strategy just means that I have to worry less about 
the hosts or hostesses feelings getting hurt that I'm leaving early than protecting my sobriety. So, you know, I go to dinner parties all the time where I'm like, I have my husband, I have a signal. And if people start to get really drunk or if there's just, I'm feeling tired and just a little weaker than usual, I might, you know, just do our little signal and I'm like, okay, it's time to go. And then we can go. But those exit strategies also have to do with our agreement with our kids about you know, that contract about like, you can call and we'll come and get you and we can talk about it the next day kind of thing. I had that with my parents and that was really great. I always felt like if I needed them, they'd be there and we could not talk about it in the moment, but give everyone a chance to sort of breathe and talk about it the next day. So there's lots of things that I sort of explain as exit strategies and the excuses, ways to get out of things, advocating for yourself. This is all really important stuff about becoming an adult. Absolutely. And I think arming them, you know, with some actual words, right? Yeah. Like versus just thinking that right. you mentioned the fact that it's it's also a kind of like a fatigue, like over time, mm-hmm. they're going to be at a party. And then in the beginning, they're going to be like, no, thanks, or I'm not going to do it, or I got to practice it. But it's like on the 20th times they, that they get asked, it's kind of hard because it's like, well, I've been asked 20 times. So like, maybe I'll do it. You know what I mean? Like, it's more like a fatigue issue sometimes, right? Yeah. And there's also the reason the word inoculation is in the, in the title of the book is that there's this thing called inoculation theory, which is we need to teach kids refusal skills, but it's more than just refusal skills. It's like when kids know that they have a rebuttal. So for example, let's say your kid is in eighth grade and someone offers them a beer and your kids is like, Oh, I don't know. And the kid's like, Oh, come on. It's no big deal. Everybody does it. Well, if your kid knows Less than 25% of kids report that they have had more than a sip of alcohol by the end of eighth grade. They don't have to say that. They're like, no, only 25%. They can actually (laughs) just in their head, they're like, well, you're full of crap. I know that's not true. That inoculation, that ability to resist in the moment because you've been given the information to resist at home in a safe environment, that is actually really important as well. And it it feeds into the whole, you know, teaching kids refusal skills. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Okay. Well, guess what, Jessica, it's party time and at least party time (laughs) without alcohol or drugs. It is the speed round. Excellent. You don't really have to be that speedy. You answer it your own. Okay. (laughs) I don't want to put the pressure on. I feel like sometimes people are like, how fast do you want this answer? (laughs) What does it mean to you to be a warrior woman? To me, it just means that I'm always true to myself and my values and my morals and my ethics. And I try really hard not to let situational, have that problem with situational ethics that I just try to stay true to our family's sort of ethos. I love that. What is a mantra or quote you live by? I decided to make my life my argument. That's Dr. Albert Schweitzer. Oh, I decided to make my life my argument. What makes you feel unstoppable? The support of my family. I mean, you know, know, I've had situations in which I've given interviews and, you know, internet trolls have come out and my family protects me. My family is the reality that matters most to me. Absolutely. What are you most proud of? I'm most proud of the fact that I learned from my mistakes. The first draft of The Gift of Failure was a disaster. I learned a ton about what it means to write a book and I tend not to make the same mistakes over and over again. So, you know, my editor now refers to me as 
the kind of author who learns from her mistakes and doesn't make the same mistake twice. I'm really proud of that. That's amazing. I love that. What keeps you going when you're feeling lost? Be accountability to other people. You know, it's really, I work at home a lot. I write from home and writers, we can get super in our heads. And when we come to the page, we're like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never done this before. This is like, what happened? I woke up and I have no idea how to write anymore. But for me, it comes down to the content of what I write about. And when I go out and get to interact with the people that need to hear something that I've learned about in the research, that's what keeps me accountable and moving and going forward. I call that when you pretend that you don't know what you're doing and all that, I call that (laughs) mind fuckery. (laughs) Oh, look at this mind fuckery I'm having that I I don't know what I'm doing. I suddenly don't know how to coach. I don't know what I'm doing. These masterminds. Like, I love when that comes because literally it makes me smile because you can clock it. It's coming. Yeah right? It's like anytime you get a little bit outside of your comfort zone, there's something a little bit bigger or new or different. All of a sudden your mind's like, you don't even know what you're doing. Yeah. What are you doing, girl? Like you. Well, like- and for lots of the stuff that I do, beginner's mind is good anyway. If I'm going to work at the rehab, you know, when it comes to sobriety, you know, every single day could be, you know, the day that it all falls apart for me. So I have to come to every single day with the, okay, I'm just not going to drink today. And, you know, that's not a bad place to be. No, my God. So true. What's exciting you the most right now? I'm learning a new way of writing. I write nonfiction and I'm working on a fiction project and it's really, really hard and really, really frustrating. And I have a whole new respect for fiction writers. But my two best friends who I also host a podcast with about writing called hashtag am writing. I just decided it was time to push myself and do something different. I've gotten good at what I do and now I need to not sit on those laurels. I need to push myself a little harder. That so is that's been beautiful. exciting lately. First of all, I love the Beautiful Writers podcast. Like that's one that I listen mm-hmm. to a writer as well. And my husband's writing his first novel. He's on his second draft. So Very I'm cool. Totally tell him about this podcast. He's Very gonna- cool. Well, it's really fun because they're one, one of the hosts, KJ Delantonio, was my editor at the New York Times. And now she writes fiction. She had Reese Witherspoon's pick, The Chicken Sisters, last year. That was her book. And she's not working on a third book now. And then the other host, Serena Bowen, is a has written like 37 books and has had like over 20 bestsellers. So we write very different stuff. And so yeah. it's we come at writing from three different places. That is super cool. I will be listening to that. Thank you so much for coming on today and with your three puppies and sharing all this wealth of knowledge, statistics, information, wisdom, all I mean, everything you shared because really we are not having these conversations. The conversations are being had in private and with small groups of women who are trusting each other to say, do you think this is okay? So I really felt like I needed to just kind of set level set some things. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really appreciate you coming today. Of course. Can I plug can I plug a quick thing? I started something new. Well, I someone, a parent recently told me that they were reluctant to come to one of my events because it was scary to be talking about addiction and substance use in public. And so I sort of all of a sudden the light went on. And so I've started a, an Instagram and TikTok series called Addiction on Oculation in my office, where it's just the two of us. And I'm on like episode five. I'm at Teacher Leahy on Instagram and at Jess Leahy on TikTok. And I'm going to go all the way through the book. So it'll take us all the way through and it'll give you the highlights so that, you know, you can learn about it in private. And then you can always email me or get in touch if you have extra questions. Oh, no, I'm going to put all this in the show notes. You're going to give me all the things. I'll put them all in the show notes. And is that something that you would recommend parents watch or kids watch or both? 
It's really for parents, although some kids have told me that they've been watching it or reading addiction inoculation, but it really is for parents, teachers, you know, coaches, mentors, anyone who works with kids. Okay. That sounds great. Well, I will put everything in the show notes. So give me all the links and the things. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you guys for joining me today. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star written review. This is the Conversations of Warrior Women podcast with me, Liz Swadek. And remember, every woman has a story. You just need to ask her. Bye.